yes, it's going to involve technology, but the idea that mainstream capitalism working as it's always worked is delivering us, it's clearly not because it is pushing us well over these planetary boundaries. And it's going to take an awful lot more than merely saying, oh, you know, we've sorted it out before and technology and capitalism sorted again. That is, has not been happening. And it's time to rethink the essence of how we design our enterprises and, and the, the purpose to which we put our technologies. Hello and welcome to the Exponential View podcast. I'm Azim Azar, the creator of The Exponential View and your host today. In today's podcast, I'm in conversation with Kate Rayworth, the creator of the internationally acclaimed movement Donut Economics. This aims to redesign economics in such a way that it can meet the needs of all 9, 10, 11 billion humans within the means of the planet and its own boundaries. Now, before we get to my conversation with Kate, let me tell you about Exponential View. It's my way of explaining how the world is changing under the force of technology. The podcast, These Conversations with Some Brilliant Minds, is one avenue. The other is through my free newsletter, A Wonder Missive, which lands in your inbox every Sunday. If you haven't subscribed, you can find it at www.exponentialview.co. Now, I also have to ask you to take a moment to share this podcast with your friends, or if your podcast platform allows ratings, to spend 10 seconds or so and give us a five-star rating. This is the best way to ensure that other listeners can find the podcast. I've been asking you to do this for a few weeks, and I'm really pleased to say that more than 300 of you have already given us a great rating. I'd love to get that number to 500, or dare I dream, even 1,000 in the next few weeks. In today's conversation with Kate, we explore the ideas behind Donut Economics, a new economic model for the 21st century. It's one in which energy and nature's resources are accounted for, in which the household and the commons are as important as the market and the state, and in which economic growth is put in its proper context. Kate and I kick off with a reflection of the shopping extravaganza that is Black Friday. Today is, uh, is Black Friday, uh, which is a, a strange thing. It's not really something that I, I ever knew existed until it suddenly existed and you sent something out quite interesting on twitter today on your theory of black friday so uh black friday it, i it drives me mad it, i i used to live in the u.s and in the u.s black friday even makes some kind of sense so it's thanksgiving weekend it's the time when the holidays begin and people start going shopping and a, a friend of mine worked in retail and explained to me it's called black friday because it means that if you're a shop owner you finally, your, your sales go from being in the red to being in the black. So yes, at last we've got, and it's the beginning of that Christmas season, the holiday season, sales are going to boom. So that's what it is. And it's become, turned into this, you know, let's all celebrate Thanksgiving in America. Oh, by the way, let's all go shopping. So they created this Black Friday shopping mayhem when you're actually supposed to be celebrating what I think is one of the, the most sort of ironic or, or difficult to hold holidays of Thanksgiving in the U.S., what I cannot stand is that it's gone international. It has zero cultural meaning in other parts of the world because Thanksgiving is a, a United States of America thing. But the retailers who are always looking to create apparent new traditions, new holidays, new rituals, new reasons to go out shopping have exported Black Friday. So all over the world, you have people camping outside retailers at 4 a.m. and crushing each other in, in the race to get the new flat screen TV. I cannot stand it. So yeah, this morning I... 
I tweeted one of my favorite pictures that I, I got it as a postcard. I put it in a little frame in my house. It says, the best things in life are not things. And I tweeted that instead. Absolutely beautiful. It's already gone uh, out to my family, uh, none of whom are, are shopping uh, today, thankfully. But th there's something in your overall, uh, the overall thesis that you have been presenting for the past few years, which is called Donut Economics, that is in your critical assessment of, of Black Friday, isn't there? Well, Donut Economics, the essence of it is the 21st century challenge, which is, can we meet the needs of all people all nine, 10 billion of us that we're going to be this century. Can we meet the needs of food and health, education and housing, access to electricity and mobility and clothing? The needs of all people within the means of this unique, delicately balanced living planet so that we don't cause climate breakdown and acidify the oceans and strip bare the soils and create a hole in the ozone layer and destroy ecosystem diversity. So can we meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? Mm. And if we're going to do that, we really need to change our relationship to shopping. Yeah, we, we certainly do. We, but shopping emerges out of, I guess, a long tradition of uh, entrepreneurialism and innovation and fundamentally meeting the needs of the market. Uh, I've got a hole in my left shoe. It's not repairable. I need to go off and buy a pair of shoes. Uh, and someone is willing to reflect, respond to that price signal and therefore the market miraculously supplies me with a pair of shoes at the right sort of price what what was what's wrong with that picture because you're telling me a very nicely painted version of it so yes markets do respond to people's needs but by the way they only respond to the needs of people who have money so ma the market mechanism is brilliant adam smith was right there's something phenomenal about the fact that this mechanism can enable millions of people who never need to meet to coordinate their behaviors and to supply what people want to buy but it has a problem. It only values what's priced and it only serves the needs of those with money. So if we're talking about people's wants, if you have a hole in your shoe, well, you need to have the money to be able to fix it. Millions of people in the world don't even have a pair of shoes and the market's not serving them. But also much of what's now called marketing is actually not serving people's needs. It's creating people's wants. And that's where the whole advertising industry came from. A century ago, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, a man called Edward Bernays, took his ankle's psychotherapy mm -hmm. and turned it into very clever retail therapy. He realized that if he could connect our deepest desires to be regarded, respected, loved, included, acknowledged, if he could connect that to the newest car, the latest jacket, the best TV, the flashest phone, he was onto something and he called it propaganda. He called it public relations. He invented this industry. I just so wish Edward Bernays were alive today because I'd like to say, you know, Edward, well done. It worked. Now, join the other team. And Black Friday is like the pinnacle of what you created. Please now join the other team and undo this deep connection that the 20th century created that has led so many people to believe that we transform ourselves and continually reinvent ourselves and improve ourselves every time we buy something more. All the psychological research shows that is hollow. That's not where our well-being comes from, but we we chase it, we pursue it, and we deserve something better. It's a really compelling articulation that you, you just delivered. And it seems that we've actually taken it further with social networks where we are encouraged through the design of those systems to create our own wants that get fed 
uh, by these virtual tchotchkes from our friends, and we're all paying with our own attention uh, on that system. And of course, you know, everybody has attention, but we all have a finite uh, uh, amount. So it's even a stage further, I suspect, from the kind of consumer capitalism that was so well articulated in that TV series, Mad Men. So yes, we're paying with our attention, and and we all, you know, we, we can all feel the psychological effects of when we know we've spent too long scrolling on a phone and we can definitely see it when we can see other people doing it, you know, couples out at dinner and they're not actually talking, they're scrolling on a phone. But actually we're paying, of course, not just with our attention, but with our privacy, our data, Mm. because what these companies really want is your recent buying habits, the clubs you belong to, the people you net with, because it all creates new opportunities for marketing. And yes, some of the services might be services that actually I would want Mm. if I knew about them, but a lot of it is just driving sales and trying to drive desires in us. So, yeah, it, it get captured. And the, I view some of this as uh, as a negative externality. Uh, the uh, sort of it's a disbenefit that is uh, socialized while the sort of private enterprise maintains as much the profit as it, as it can. I think externalities play a fundamental part in how you think about uh, economics through donut economics and maybe now's a good time for you to give us a sort of snapshot of that framework and the three rings within it okay so let me tell you about the donut um (laughs) on black friday on buy nothing day i'm talking about donuts so the donut is a diagram it's a it's a very simple picture that silly though it sounds it looks like a donut with a hole in the middle but i offer it as a compass for the 21st century and for what prosperity must look like this century so imagine that donut with a hole in the middle. And imagine humanity's use of resources radiating out from the center of the hole. So it means that the hole in the middle of the donut is a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. It's where people don't have the food and water and housing and healthcare and education and political voice and income and mobility that every person has a claim to, to lead a life of dignity and opportunity. And I crowdsource these social essentials from the world's governments. They're the social priorities in the Sustainable Development Goals, which means that all the governments in the world have already agreed that every person in the world has a claim to this. It's pretty uncontrovertible. So we want to leave no one in the hole. We need to use Earth's resources to meet every person's needs. And you could say that was really a 20th century agenda of human rights. But we now know more. Thanks to Earth system science over the last 30, 40 years, we now know that we must not use Earth's resources beyond a point that we begin to put excessive pressure on our planet's life supporting systems. We begin to kick our planetary stability out of balance. Mm-hmm. We cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans. We mm-hmm. create a hole in the ozone layer, uh, catastrophic levels of biodiversity loss, air pollution, chemical pollution. And, and what I'm describing is known as the nine planetary boundaries drawn up by a group of around 30 Earth system scientists about a decade ago. They believe these are the nine critical life-supporting systems that have made Earth such an incredibly benevolent and relatively stable planetary home for humanity. This is why we have thrived, why we can practice agriculture, why we can live well on this planet, Mm -hmm. and we'd be crazy to kick ourselves out of balance. So, So in essence, the donut is, can we meet the needs of all? within the means of the planet. And to me, that is the 21st century project. When I look back historically, uh, we lived for a long time in a Malthusian trap, uh, really up until the 1750s, I guess, 1760s. And that essentially was that local populations would 
<clears throat> would would grow. Uh, they would get a little bit poorer because you didn't have any additional productivity. So you just worked the land with with more people, um, uh, more mouths to feed with the same output. Then some pestilence or famine would come up. It would knock the population down. Uh, as we depopulated, we'd get wealthier on a per capita basis, and then we'd start having children again, and we'd zigzag up and down through that. And there was a, a boundary, a kind of Malthusian boundary. And then at some point, after we started to harness coal rather than timber, and we started to be able to exchange ideas because more people could um, could read and could share ideas, uh, we were able to increase productivity and break through that Malthusian um, barrier. And that really happened in England, I guess, in the 1750s, 1760s. Uh, and it forced us to, I think, reconsider the nature of the threats against us. How how do we, I mean, there, there, is, there is an argument. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I believe in the argument, but there is an argument that comes sometimes from um, the right that says, well, technology and capitalism got us through that last boundary. And in general, it's pretty good at this. It's going to do it again so the story you just told of uh the rise of productivity the industrial revolution in in mm. england and then elsewhere a lot of the rise of productivity that's been recorded over centuries has often been unexplained in mm -hmm. models and actually a large part of that apparent gain in productivity has come from the source of energy mm -hmm. and it's no coincidence that the industrial revolution kicked off when coal mining became more intensive and then on comes oil. So there's been extraordinarily cheap sources of intensively held energy. And that has enabled a lot of what we record as productivity. But of course, you're the one who said the word externalities. I, I fight with that word. We can talk about that if you want. But outside of the market contract, there are all sorts of negative impacts that haven't been taken into account. And of course, we all know that there are very significant negative externalities from using fossil fuels. So, yes, technologies have found ways out of a challenge, found ways to capture financial value, and there are negative knock-on effects somewhere else. Often the way that this has happened is countries like the, like the UK, right, a colonial empire. Somehow those negative externalities sometimes get pushed overseas, mm -hmm. and so it's sort of spread out to the colonies and a long delay of that rebound coming home. This is a project now on the global scale. There is nowhere else for that negative impact to go. And this is precisely, for me, why the, the work of the Earth System scientists on planetary boundaries is so paradigm-changing, because it says we believe there are critical levels of pressure that we're putting on our Earth system. When we go over that, we risk tipping the Earth system into a completely different state. Now, mm -hmm. if you want to, uh, you know, the IPCC, the, the, the climate change scientists, just a month or so ago said, by the way, we've got 12 years, essentially, to turn this situation around if we want to avoid that in terms of climate change. So, yes, it's going to involve technology, but the idea that mainstream capitalism working as it's always worked is delivering us, it's clearly not because it is pushing us well over these planetary boundaries. And it's going to take an awful lot more than merely saying, oh, you know, we've sorted it out before and technology and capitalism sorted again. That is, has not been happening, and it's time to rethink the essence of how we design our enterprises and, and the, the purpose to which we put our technologies. Uh, so much to unpack in that, in that response. <laughs> the, the, where I want to, uh, let's just go back to your hesitation to use the word externalities. I'm really curious about that. Okay, so. So we, let's, the same starting point. Uh, Arthur Pigou, uh, externalities are unpriced costs that are not present in the, the contracts between two parties. 
Okay, so here, economics, right? So this is a word in this field of economics. So I trotted off to university to study economics because I wanted to know the mother tongue of public policy. I asked this question to students all around the world. What's the first diagram you remember learning in economics? And whether they're current students or whether they're previous students, you know, older generation. Oh, supply and demand. Supply and demand, that little crisscross. Yeah. The Hicksian yeah, right? Obvious, right? But economics means household management. Welcome to economics, the art of managing our household. And -hmm. what happens on day one? Here's the market. Mm -hmm. What an extraordinary leap. As if to say, we want to manage our household. No time given to actually understanding this household and the planet and how it works. Very little time to understanding truly who the people and inhabitants are and their nature and character. We jump straight in. Welcome to the market as if we manage our household merely through the market. So that puts the market at the center of economic thinking on day one. And it puts price as the major uh, variable through which we are looking as a lens. Mm -hmm. Now, anything that's falling outside this market, because we've got to put it at the center on day one, we need to call it an externality. I just find that extraordinary. So here in the 21st century, we are on the tipping point of catastrophic levels of climate change. And it gets described in two words in economics, that that's an environmental externality. I mean, if we're going to go around talking about the death of our living planet as an environmental externality, to me, that is a huge alarm bell that economic theory, as it has been constructed, is in no way equipped. And to be honest, I think if Arthur Pigou were alive today, he'd say, you're kidding me. Nearly a hundred years on after I came up with that term, I mean, I, I just observed something. You're still using the same damn word. Have you yeah. got no new ideas? The whole, your whole conception of what human well-being is and what thriving is has changed, and you're still using this really uh, thin word that external, externalizes issues. It pushes them to the periphery of our vision. It's, uh, so uh, to come think about it in terms of the oikos, right, that, the household, I suppose it, it's a bit, to put it in simplistic terms, it's a bit like saying, well, um, you know, we, ha- we had some friends over for dinner and there was – you know, uneaten food and rubbish uh, and sort of empty bottles. Um, and we're just not going to worry about those and leave them in the corner of the living room. Uh, that's sort of the, 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 the model that we've, we've discussed with the notion of externalities. It brings to mind a, a, a famous Simpsons cartoon where Homer runs for mayor on the, uh, on the manifesto of get someone else to do it. Uh, which was his, in, his entire manifesto, and in a sense, the market analysis is a little bit, um, a little bit like this. The market does this one key thing. There's this all this other stuff, which actually is a little bit of a hassle to think about and deal with. Um, so let's get someone else to do it. And, and in, historically, we've dumped it in the oceans, or buried it in landfills, or put it into the um, into the atmosphere. And- but to be fair to economists, they would say. They would say, well, when, you know, the whole point of economics is to notice these externalities and say, how do we now bring them into account? So do we mm-hmm. use a price mechanism? Do we use tax? Do we use quotas? So I want to do justice because otherwise economists say, oh, she doesn't understand it. Yes, I do. Uh, right. We need to bring them into the picture. But the very fact that we have centered our thinking on the market mechanism and anything that doesn't naturally fall into it is outside of it, it's a market failure, and we've mm-hmm. got to figure out how to bring it in. I find that just an extraordinary way of starting. Well, there's, there's some historical reasons, I think, why people started, started there. There was the whole, um, you know, uh, the physiocrats, right? And they, they took the physics and the maths of the time and, and, and built, built models and um, which seem to have captured the imagination. And one of the things that I think is, is challenging for people who are trying to redefine this is that 
there has been historically, and I know the mood is changing, uh, such a towering um, volume of formalism around uh, economics. I mean, the gap between the writings of of Keynes and where ec- economics got to a few years ago uh, with its mathematical formalisms um, based around uh, you know a bunch of pretty simplistic assumptions because that was the way that the assumptions you needed to make to to make these things tractable um it's it's quite a it's quite a large death star for your x-wing fighter to to tackle isn't it <laughs> yeah I, I have a 10 year old son so i'm very big on star wars i'm all into taking on the death star i mean and there, there are, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not alone. There's a lot of little X-Wing fighters going around this thing. But it, I think it's proving itself totally the wrong uh, craft to be on in the 21st century. And the way I go into the Death Star of formalized mainstream economics is to look at its history. Because if you go back into where did these ideas come from, who came up with them, and what were the times and why, first of all, you can fully respect the people behind these ideas. Not for me at all about trashing Adam Smith or Jevons or Keynes or any of them. It's about understanding the times, their circumstance, what they knew of the world and what they were trying to do. And the formalism, you know, uh, the, the, the desire to make economics like physics goes back to the 1870s when William Stanley Jevons and, and Valhas in Switzerland wanted to show that economics was a science and the science of the day was physics and the great of the day was Sir Isaac Newton. And they began talking about the laws of supply and demand, the laws of diminishing returns. These are not laws. You know, Newton had discovered the, the physical laws of motion and, and economists started mimicking the, that language of his physics and deriving these um, supply and demand curves in the style of Newton. Themselves, they knew, actually, um, Jevons knew that economics was actually a dynamic field, but he didn't have the maths in the day. And so he turned it into a static analysis. If he were alive today, if Marshall were alive, if Keynes were alive, if Smith were alive, I absolutely believe they would be the first to roll up their sleeves and say, for heaven's sakes, come up with some new ideas that actually fit the times, that actually fit the tools you have. You have the whole of systems dynamic. You have a completely different understanding of the Earth system. Please stop just regurgitating the foundations that we laid down decades, centuries ago. Right. And so we have some new disciplines. I mean, we have things like complexity theory and we have things that, that seem to have inspired you like um, design thinking and cultural anthropology and and systems thinking mm-hmm. uh, the, how do those latter uh, disciplines play into um, or are reflected in in donor economics so I was taught pretty mainstream economics by some brilliant uh, teachers and professors I have to say um, which is the only reason why I ever continued to stay in this field but it was pretty narrow and after I left university, I worked uh, three years in, in the villages of Zanzibar, four years at the UN on the Human Development Report, over a decade in Oxfam. And I realized I spent the first 20 years of my career trying to make visible those things that were just left invisible by mainstream economics, like the unpaid caring work of women, like mm-hmm. the impacts of climate change. Um, and I just thought, I do not want to spend the next 20 years of, of my career doing this. So I left my job to write Donut Economics, and I focused on reading all the economic theories I had never been taught like ecological economics, which begins with the planetary household and asks, how much pressure can we put? How big can the economy be in relation to the planet? I began with uh, feminist economics, complexity economics, and systems thinking, 
behavioral yeah. economics, institutional economics. And I was just really fascinated and excited by the insights I found in these. But my frustration is that they are all pigeonholed off in their own uh, little niche area. So the feminist economists go to different conferences than the ecological economists and they write in different journals and they read different blogs and there are different names. We will never break into that death star of the mainstream textbook if everyone's off doing their own niche project. And so what I was trying to do in donut economics was to bring them all together and say, what happens when these very different insights from so-called heterodox angles, when they dance on the same page and when they begin to create a new synthesis? And I think there's a lot of potential in that new synthesis. One of the, um, uh, the, the, the things that economics is supposed to give us is tools to actually plan i mean it's one of the primary things as you said the language of policymakers that they use to construct incentives and you know nudge behavior here and make investments there um, what's the framing that um that donut economics uses in in order to do that and and, and maybe to, to to kind of clarify that a little bit bit more um Mainstream economics was also connected to the political institutions of the time and the communications technologies of the time and what we could count and uh, what we could keep track of. Um, we've obviously moved on a long, a long way in the, you know, since the Great Depression for sake of argument. Um, so when you think about what it takes to actually apply donut economics and what levers does it pull and what gets tracked, um, how do you build that picture up? Okay, so instead of starting the first class in economics with welcome to the market, here's supply and demand, I start with the diagram that I call the embedded economy. And it shows the economy exists within society. It is a social construct. And it is embedded within the living world, a subset of the living world. So we need to understand the way the living world functions and we need to understand social relations if we're going to create an economy that actually respects and, and works in relation to them. So the economy exists in society in the living world. But also I divide the economy into four fundamental forms of provisioning from day one. Yes, there is the market. So it's the mechanism, the price mechanism for uh, producing and exchanging goods. Mm -hmm. There's the state, mm -hmm. right? Raising public funds, providing public goods. Now, the 20th century just turned into an ideological boxing match between these two. You know, you mm -hmm. the market, the state, capitalism versus communism. So tiringly narrow because we, in that process, lost sight of two other fundamental forms of provisioning. There's the household, the mm -hmm. space of unpaid caring work, where we're raising our children, caring for ourselves and our partners, looking after our parents. It's the foundations of our well-being. And we, we begin every day there. But there's also the commons, the place where people come together, not through the market, not through the state, but as a community, whether it's creating a, a garden on the corner of your neighborhood block or Wikipedia on the World Wide Web. It has rules. It has community members, people co-creating values, co-creating things that they value and therefore sharing, but sometimes without any money changing hands. Mm -hmm. and I think thanks to the work of Ellen Ostrom, the commons is resurgent. Uh, we recognize its form. And thanks to the digital commons, the commons is going to be one of the most dynamic spaces of economic activity this century. So it's crazy to ignore it in economic education. So the market, the state, the household and the commons. And then the first question comes is thinking of the provisioning of any kind of good or service, whether it's mobility or education or haircuts or tomatoes, which of these four provisioning sectors actually best provides them? Or perhaps it's a cross between the two. Is it the market and the commons or the household and market? Given 
the prevailing technologies, given institutional possibilities, and that is constantly shifting. So what always seemed it needed to be in the market has shifted into the commons, you know, encyclopedias to Wikipedia, as an example. Mm-hmm. So we have to start by recognizing these different kinds of provisioning and know that it's a moving feast about which kind of technology and organization and values should determine which one works best. You, you've got me thinking in a whole bunch of different uh, directions here. I'm going to try and nail, pin, pin down a couple. Um, this idea of um, things, I mean, I'm thinking about as somebody of, of you know, subcontinental heritage, um, there were many things that were managed, resources that were managed that weren't managed uh, within the market. And, uh, and, and actually during the process of colonialization, they got marketized. Uh, and and so institutions that had actually grown up through a set of cultural affordances and language and codification, things that you actually learnt on your grandmother's knee, became things that needed a contract, which is sort of, uh, I mean, it, it's useful in the sense it might be recorded, but it, ten- it, it, it probably created a certain amount of friction. I mean, that's something I'll, I'll explore in, in, in future, but I'm, I'm sure there must be quite a lot of work done in that particular area. Um, uh, uh, sorry, you were going to say? Yeah. No, you, you're, you're absolutely on it. Uh, there's a shift between goods and services that might be provided within a community. Often women, it's, not, it's no coincidence, it's your grandmother's need, your grandfather's need that you mentioned, right? Often women held that space, mm-hmm. um, and it was a lot of strong social and community capital that between them, strong trust, strong uh, producing things together in the community, and, and that's where a lot of ritual and culture exists to bind and create these ties of community so that we can rely on trust in each other. And some of that moved out from community provision into the market. And of course, in the process, it boosts GDP. So you get so-called economic growth because exactly. the value of goods and services sold is going up, even though they might have always been produced and valued. And they, they could have lost some of their cultural value or some of their community connection because they've be- become commodified. So it's a fascinating sociological arena of what happens when the provisioning of goods and services moves between these different sectors and I don't want to idealize any one of them you know as a woman I am glad that my life does not mean I'm at home in the kitchen only talking to other women always cooking for my children I'm very glad that I can step out into the market I can publish a book and and therefore engage in a market and but my life is in many of these spaces so i don't want to idealize any one of them but let's not reify one of them above the rest and make it hello welcome to economics here's the market you forget the rest in that process we're in danger of being in violent agreement here uh so i want to just run look into two areas one is commons and the other is is the is the household and how you just understand how you think about those um one of the things that, that strikes me about about the commons is what most of us learn about the commons is that it's a tragic place. Uh, and and I, sus- I just always wondered whether the narrative of the tragedy of the commons allowed that to create an excuse-making for the commons to be messed up. So you go past a shared resource, let's just say it's a public park and it's full of litter, and you go, oh, oh such a pity that it's so littered. And then the next thought is, well, it's a commons and there's bound to be a tragedy of the commons. And you, you move along. I mean, I, th- I think it almost, I wonder, did it construct ex- reasons for us not to protect it because it was always going to be, be tragic? And then I'm curious about why one, once Eleanor Ostrom started to do her work, she found so many examples in so many different um, uh, uh, areas, um, different cultures, different geographies, where commons were actually extremely well managed. I mean, what, yes. what, how do we square those? 
1968, Garrett Hardin wrote a, uh, an article that was about the tragedy of the commons. And he described, just as you did, oh, you might go past the sort of open area and it's littered. That is not what is meant by commons. Let's call that open access land, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can use it. It's quite likely, therefore, if nobody's tending to it, no one's stewarding it, it, yes, it may well get littered or overused. That is not what is meant by commons. And for me, um, David Bollier wrote a book, actually, um, called Thinking Like a Commoner, which I found extremely useful. And he says, if you really want to find a commons, the first thing you need to find is not a resource, find the people. So commoners, look for commoners, because a commons is a resource that's actually tended and stewarded by a group. So I'm going to use Wikipedia as an example. Uh, Many people contribute, but there are very clear rules around editing. And if you go in and just write completely false information on a page, somebody else will come in and re-edit it. And if you did that repeatedly, you could be blocked. You could be barred. Ultimately, you need to earn your editing rights. Now, these are all exactly the kinds of rules that get put in place in order for comments to function so that people, it's not just a free for all. There are, there are rules, there are punishments uh, if you violate those rules so that you can curate a space of, of goods and services that people collectively value. Let's think of um, forestry groups in, I don't know, in, in Nepal or in India who have a, a specific area of forest that is fenced in. They know it's theirs. They together create rules about what you're allowed to harvest and when and which days you can't. And also they'll patrol it and make sure that nobody else from outside is coming in and harvesting their resources. It's a mem clear in terms of membership. So the commons has commoners. Mm -hmm. And what Eleanor Ostrom did was instead of Garrett Hardin wrote this piece saying, well, you know, open resources will all get, always get overexploited. She said, I'm not going to just spout off my view. She went out and actually found all these commonly stewarded resources and said, hmm, this is interesting. I'm finding that in practice people are managing. So let me ask why and how. And she came up with this set of criteria. Like Seven or eight criteria, right? Yeah, like clearly defined membership. Hmm. regular communication, punishments, if you violate the rules. And she said, these are the conditions under which commons can work. And so just like markets, there are conditions under which markets work. You need private property rights. You need clear contracts. Hmm. There are conditions under which commons work. And we've just spent decades denigrating the commons. And I think we've massively lost time and opportunity to refine this technology. It's, a, you know, it's an institutional technology of ways of working together. And it's just coming back in, especially with, the possibility of open source design, creative commons licensing. Many people want to work in the digital commons. So you also talked a little bit about the digital commons. Can you just say a little bit more about what you think is in it and, and what it will look like in a few years and how it'll develop? So I think the digital commons are going to be one of the most dynamic spaces of our economy this century because uh, in, in donor economics, my, the two design principles that I put at the heart of donor economics are creating economies that are regenerative by design so that we use resources in ways that work with and within the cycles of the living world. Things don't get used up, they get used again and again. Some people call that the circular economy. Mm -hmm. But also that we create distributive design so that value created is shared far more equitably with all those who help co-create it. And in attempting to put these design principles into practice, I think we've got some unprecedented uh, opportunities on our side because for the first time in human history, the technology for generating and distributing energy is distributed by design, right? It's not a big oil rig here or a coal mine there. It's a solar panel, a wind power turbine 
dotted on every roof across the landscape. It is a distributed network. And for the first time in human history, the means of uh, sharing knowledge and communication is distributed by design. It's not an operator switchboard that every phone call has to go through. It's a node in every pocket. It's a smartphone, a mobile phone, which is extraordinarily widely distributed across the human population. So for the first time, the technologies of energy and information are distributed by design. That's an incredible opportunity. Now we've got the social technology of creative commons licensing, so intellectual property rights, is also being made distributed by design. We've, you know, since the 1500s, when glass blowers began leaving Venice and they wanted to protect their ideas, they created patents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, I'll, I'll show you my idea, but no one can copy it for 20 years. And we know that, that you know, patents and copyrights has been misused and, and commodified in a way now that so many companies actually buy them up and pr- focus on creating them to create a sort of intellectual property wall to stop others from innovating. So that what was intended to ena- enable innovation has actually become a terrible spaghetti junction blocking innovation mm. now pops up in, in the digital commons, creative commons licensing. And these, these licenses that say, you know, is it, uh, it's got, got to be attribution or not. Can you change it or not? Derivation share mm. alike. So it's giving granularity to different kinds of ideas and enabling people to share their work in exactly the appropriate way. Put together distributive energy, distributive communications of the internet and creative commons licensing, and you've got the structural platform for open source uh, design where, so one example is the Open Building Institute, which you can find online. They're coming up with designs for houses, so low cost, affordable, low energy, um, passive housing that can be built from locally available materials anywhere in the world, sharing the designs for free. Yeah. So that's given as a, in the commons. And of course, anybody who builds one of their houses is asked to then share ideas back. Oh, we did this. We created this innovation. So you're building the ideas. And oh, I, th- I think what's interesting about that is that you're not, you're, you're actually sharing um, embodied physical ideas as well. The real experiences of building the building yes. beyond the plan. Uh, and and that I think is an in, that that's a level that doesn't come across when you just see, for sake of argument, source code on GitHub. Uh, right, right. And and here's a photo of how we did it. And here, yeah. and, and by the way, here's us having fun when we. And here's us having fun, right? <laughs> Smiles are really powerful motivator. Yeah, and so you've got just to add this, you've got the the share the open source, but then think of all the people who are building those houses. At the end, they could be a market based enterprise. We'll build you an affordable house. You know, not everybody wants to go online and find their own affordable housing design. Some people want to pay someone to build it. So yeah. this is a really nice example of the knowledge is shared in the commons, but then the actual product can be shared through the market. And this works for open source software design. Well, I mean, IBM just found that Red Hat's model of building digital houses for people was worth a lot. They acquired, they acquired it for $34 billion dollars. Uh, and Red Hat was a open source, uh, open source Unix. I mean, what you've described is, is you know, it's, it's super motivating, and um, certainly Creative Commons has been uh, an idea that's been building over the last almost twenty years. Uh, what one of the things that I've observed is what it does to the cycle time for new ideas. So back back in the distant uh, uh, ages, uh, when I was wiring modems up to the to the to the internet. The time it took for, say, an innovation, a breakthrough idea, or even just a small incremental idea in a computer science lab to turn into something that was widely available might be measured in almost a decade. Mm-hmm. So it would be the idea would come up, it would 
be presented uh, internally in a department. It, it would make its way to a peer-reviewed journal that might take a couple of years. It would get presented the year after that at a conference. Um, some company might take a look at that and start to build with that technology, protecting it uh, through various intellectual property measures, and then selling it at a a premium. That process has then taken five or seven years. And then there's another five or seven years while you get in get the market share that you need with that innovation. So it's a terribly sl slow period process. You compare to what happens today, which is that there are now preprint um, uh, preprints for lots of academic papers pre prior to peer review. The big ones called archive. So you'll get a computer science um, incremental breakthrough, probably around machine learning. It'll be on archive on a Monday. Uh, by Wednesday, the code will be on GitHub with some uh, descriptions of, on how to use it. There'll be a discussion on Stack Exchange or Hacker News. Uh, and then a week or two later, there might be the first presentation at a physical meetup. Uh, and so the cycle time of getting this out and proved drops from years to, to, to days. And I think it's one reason why we're able to see the very, very rapid dispersion of many of these incremental software techniques um, across many different economies, whether it's in China or in the West or in other parts of the world, compared to where we were 20 years ago. I mean, there are lots of other things. More people are connected. There are more computers, there's servers, there's cloud, and so on. But the 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 time for this knowledge to diffuse and be tested and iterated in the economy is orders of magnitude quicker than it was 25 years ago. I love that example. And what I'm hearing there is, is it's evidence to me that humanity's ability to collaborate, to innovate, to share, to uh, prototype and improve and, and reiterate is far faster than the institutional technologies that we created that were supposed to enable this. So, for example, as you said, you know, the university articles written, but then it's not published. People won't share until it's published. It's that intellectual property rights again. It won't be shared by the company until it's, uh, they've got it on the market. So it just shows that the old designs that we've had for some centuries around how to create and share intellectual property rights are massively holding us back. And that's what I think is so important about the new kinds of Creative Commons licensing. And by the way, the ones we've got today are just the beginning of it. And I'm sure, you know, put, put smart lawyers together with smart innovators and open source designers who say, I need it to be able to this, 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 this. I want to share that, protect that. We're going to see a whole ecosystem, I think, of kinds of licensing that we need. So there's one thing I was curious of, and I may got my logic completely twisted here. But one of the things I think happened in the Industrial Revolution in England was that there was relatively loose uh, intellectual property protection. So there was quite a bit of, of copying. Yes. And, and then if you look at the in, the in the railway boom in the 19th century in the US, they uh, the railway companies actually entered into these sort of collective invention contracts where they, sh they shared their know-how and pooled it to accelerate the rate of innovation and accelerate the rate of growth. Um, one of the things you m m argue within um, donor economics is a move from being a kind of growth obsessed to growth agnostic um, method of thinking about the the economy as a system. Um, if we are, if we're distributing these ideas much faster and new ideas are coming into the market more quickly, um, that, doesn't that have an impact on the putative uh, growth rate, like potentially increasing it? but also increasing the amount of effort that is going into tweaking, replacement, um, uh, and replenishment of the technologies and services that we have in the economy. And isn't, doesn't that then create a sort of have a thermodynamic heat waste effect? 
So when I talk about growth, I'm talking very specifically about, uh, let's say, GDP, right? The value, the, 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 mark, the market price of goods and services sold in the economy in a period. Hmm. And in my book, I argue that we should move away from being growth addicted, which I think our economies currently are structurally, financially, politically, and socially structured to expect demand and depend upon endless growth. Mm. And that locks us into having policies that pursue it, even to the detriment of people's social Life. well-being or, or the planet. Mm. We need to move to what I call being growth agnostic. Because again, let's go back to the market, the household, the state, and the commons. We've been talking about all the incredible potential for ideas to be shared in the commons, hugely valuable ideas. I mean, think of the value in Wikipedia, but it, it doesn't show up as a market sale. Mm -hmm. it, what if more of the designs of the way buildings could be designed, uh, the way certain kind of transport or uh, all those designs move over into the commons, it won't be showing up in GDP. So the, the valuable solutions that we're creating in the world could be increasing. Mm -hmm. But they, they, we need to move away from the idea that everything has to be turned into an ever-increasing market value because that skews us away from actually pursuing a greater prosperity. And by the way, yeah, yes, there's a danger that you, know, you have all these credible innovations. Do we use more and more materials? No, because we need to design tomorrow's housing that's going to be open source in a regenerative and distributive way. So what I love about something like the Open Building Institute is they've precisely put regenerative design at the heart of their thinking. How can we use locally available resources in the least wasteful way possible? How can we use them in ways that they can be used again? How can we, um, you know, take wastewater from the household and use it rather than just flushing good water away? So you've got to build regenerative design into the way that the commons are working. So it's not just, you know, let's, let's use the commons, it's a free-for-all. That's why, for me, the planetary boundaries create such a brilliant mm -hmm. boundary for innovation. And innovators love boundaries, not to break through them, I think. Oh, no, absolutely. To, to innovate beyond them. Yeah, I think what one of the, the strengths of uh, Steve Jobs as a leader of design and innovation was his you know, insistence on certain classes of detail that could not be crossed. I mean, he had real red lines. Uh, you talked about um, these four things, the market, the state, the commons and the household. And we've spent some time talking about the commons. Just help us think about how we should um, conceptualize and think about the household in the context of um, the, the economy. Well, it's the question of who does all the cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, raising the kids, clearing up and doing it all again tomorrow. Because let's go back to Econ 101, right? Welcome to the market. Here's supply mm. and demand. And the factors of production are labor and capital. Mm. There's so much wrong with that, but I'm just going to be on labor, right? So labor, labor. So this model imagines labor as a sort of little fresh worker pops up at the factory door every day, ready to work. Well, who got that labor ready for work every day? Mm -hmm. Who looked after that labor when it was sick? Who fed it, washed its clothes, he, men, you know, uh, brought it back to health? Who even toilet trained that labor when it was a, a child? Who socialized that labor so it knows to work with others and to actually be a good team member? This is all the space of the unpaid caring work of the household economy. And of course, traditionally, it's been the space of women's work. And I'd say in nearly every country, it still is more predominantly women than men. But of course, that is um, being evened out in some countries, a real cultural shift. You know, 20 years ago in most countries, you wouldn't have seen a man walking down the street with a, carrying a baby in a, in, a, in a sling carrier or even pushing a pram. And in many countries, that's changing. In some, it hasn't started changing at all. So it's about rebalancing 
Well, first of all, it's about recognizing the value of unpaid caring work in the home. It's, it is the essence of our well-being. You just, you know, spoke beautifully about sitting on your grandmother's knee. That is part of one of the most treasured memories we can have. It falls totally outside the market economy. So first, let's recognize the value of unpaid caring work, reduce it as a burden and, and wonderful focus for technology, but then also redistribute it. Redistribute it between women and men. And that's really a, a culture and a legal redistribution. I think one of the things that, that one can be optimistic about is that we are starting to uh, rediscover the importance of, of community and having access to things that are within sort of cycling or strolling distance. Uh, we, we, had, we went through this period where I guess urban design was about um, a sort of a, a, a ring like the crust around the bath bathtub where people lived and you'd you'd take your your, your tube or your bike your, or your your bus or your train to the to the plug hole where you worked and um, and it does seem to be that we're we're starting to to change that and, and working patterns are starting to um, ad- adapt to it I think we are starting to see this I mean it's not just in the the you know the small European cities like uh, you know Amsterdam and Copenhagen uh, where they've They've, they, they've done that. But I also read recently that transit uh, metro volumes on the New York City subway um, have really shifted and evened out throughout the day because there's a larger proportion of freelancers and people working for dynamic firms where you're allowed to work at, from home or from the local co-working spot. And you just come into the office when you have to physically have some high bandwidth collaboration. So there's, the cultural affordances are starting to shift um, in some of these, uh, I, I, you know, more avant-garde, large urban metros. So I, I, you know, I feel reasonably optimistic about that. Yeah. And for me, what, since my book was published a year and a half ago, I just love seeing people from all sorts of different kinds of practice picking up the donut saying, oh, I want to use this here. And one of my favorite things, a, a, an urban designer who I met through Twitter who said, we're designing new uh, suburbs of Stockholm here in Sweden, we want to design the world's most sustainable living districts. And we, we're using your donut to ask ourselves the question, how can we meet the needs of all the people who live here within the means of the planet? We're working together to say what that means. And one of the pr- principles they're putting at the heart of their designing is saying, can we create a district in which every home is at most 200 meters away from mobility? So you can, there's going to be a subway line or a bus stop or a, a hub where you can pick up bikes and pick up your parcels and all your, why would you want a car when, when all this beautifully accessible transit is just 200 meters away? Right. No more than 200 meters away from amenities like shops or the hospital or, or the school. So you can get to these places you need or a working hub and no more than 200 meters away from green spaces, which mean that again, communities can, there's a place you can physically meet. And that's the kind of thing that people increasingly aspire to, that oh, I, I can lead a life where I can know my neighbours, we can meet there, I can get around mm. easily. I don't need a wretched car parked outside yeah. my house. So me, cu- these are curious. really great quality of life designs to put in but, a 21st century city. But, but it's curious because if we do that, um, we still need to take advantage of the things that cities are really, really good at, uh, which is they are super linear when it comes to scaling out infrastructure, they reduce um, the uh, environmental footprint of any individual person while they generate an aggregate much more uh, pollution and waste on a per user basis, it tends to be much lower. So it's quite interesting that we have to have this sort of fractal set of layers where perhaps we need a kind of common baseline infrastructure, which is m- mega city scale sewage, water infrastructure, 
uh, mass transit. But above that, we need to support, um, you know, local peering, as it were. I'm just thinking in internet terms, right? Where where actually you can do a lot of the things you need to do within 400 a 400 meter diameter. But ultimately, you do need a super a super sewer to just shift the waste efficiently. Um, yeah, as long as that waste get- is being collected and, and not just shipped out to sea, but actually being turned back because we need to capture the the nitrogen and phosphorus in all that right. waste. It's gold. Who is gold? Right, and and it may be that we have decentralized waste management in the same way that we'll have decentralized power generation. Uh, as yeah. Well. Yeah. So decentralized and regenerative to me. So, for, and you asked me earlier, what are the really key structural ways of thinking for me at the heart of donor economics? It's the market, the state, the household, and the common. These are ways of provisioning. And then the two design principles, regenerative design, so that waste from one process is food for another, and distributive design. I think these are going to be core to 21st century prosperity and flourishing. You've left me in a great mood on this Black Friday, uh, Kate. Uh, how uh, people are interested in following up um, or learning more about uh, your, I'm going to call it a movement, uh, your your donut movement uh what's the best way of doing that so at the moment go to my website which is just my name kateraywith.com you can just google donut economics you'll find it uh, i had the privilege of working with some of the world's best stop motion animators so if you want to understand the seven ways to think like a 21st century economist in my book there are seven one minute animations that tell you each of those ways um also to there with a this is very black friday related uh, a puppet rap battle about rational economic man. Because I think what Black Friday does is it appeals to that part of us that says, yeah, go to the market, get your bargain, go and spend your money, buy your luxuries. And it's pulling us into that market character that, that is put at the heart of economics, you know, rational economic man. So there is a puppet rap battle of students taking down their professor uh, on what's wrong with that character. So I'll see you online and on Twitter. Well, I've read the book as well. It's very accessible uh, and uh, I can recommend uh, recommend that uh, for readers as well. Donut Economics, wherever you get your books from. Kate, it's been great to chat to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Azim here. Well, I can recommend Kate's book, Donut Economics. Just look for it at your favourite bookseller. I will be back next week with another great conversation. And remember, it really helps us reach new audiences and continue to improve the quality of debate around technology and the future if we have more listeners to the podcast, so please take a moment to share it and recommend it. And finally, the best way to stay in touch with me is to sign up to the weekly Wonder Missive Exponential View, which you can find at www.exponentialview.co. That is www.exponentialview.co. 